A Bergen Air Charter 757 takes off out of the Dominican Republic when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to crash into the ocean just minutes after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. We have the fan on once again because it is July in Colorado. It's, it's hot. 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 So once again, you may or may not hear it. Send us stories for I like stories. August. Send us questions. We do have a question at the end of this. Please send more questions. We love questions. We know you have them. And literally, it can be about anything. It does not have to be about specifically about the podcast, although I know some people have asked for stuff. Like, what's Miranda's favorite color? That's easy. It's purple. <laughs> <laughs> we all have color-coded stuff for the podcast, like our microphone cables and our everything on the board is all color-coded. And everything in Miranda's is purple. Yes. Yep. Everything in mine is red. Mine's blue, because my favorite color is teal, and that's as close as I can get, damn it. Yeah. If you want to check out the newsletter, newsletter goes out this month. This is the first episode of August. Happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Oh, yeah. Oh, this comes out on my birthday. That's yeah. right. it. Oh, it happy does. birthday. It comes out on my birthday. Happy birthday. When you're listening to this, probably adding it. So, yeah. <laughs> this episode airs on my birthday. So it's my on birthday. August 2nd, which is also Brendan's birthday. Yeah. So I think we've discussed that before, but yeah. If you order ducks, we will send you your ducks. We promise. Yes. They will arrive. They will arrive at some point. We have to get more ducks because we ran out of ducks. Yep. Which was kind of the point of the ducks, and yep. we have to get more ducks. <laughs> so We do have to get more ducks. Also, we're running low on episode suggestions. It kind don't of. say that. We're, we're kinda, well, kind of. Well, it's kind of dried up a little bit. We got... Because now we're not even close today. to being a, a year in advance right. anymore. It's true. So if you have a couple you want to send to us... If we, you've been saving up... <laughs> Maybe Chris. just do a couple. But also, it's time for another dump. Yeah. Because we haven't had... To be fair, I mean, we've been planning on the vacation and stuff, and I know that some people have probably been holding off and sending a lot of things, but we're back. Everything's back to normal. All that said, with that, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Bergen Air Flight 301. Thank you to our patron, Chris, for recommending this. Yes, thanks, Chris. So... This one in particular, you will hear a lot of parallels. A lot. A lot. This is probably going to be one of those episodes where Miranda guesses exactly what happens like 10 minutes into the episode. Very quickly. You're welcome. <laughs> this has some extreme parallels to something else. And as a matter of fact, so many parallels that in the Air Disasters episode for the other one, this flight came up because they happened very similar timing, too. Hmm. This happened on February 6th of 1996. This was a Boeing 757-200 with a tail number Tango Charlie-Gulf Echo November. And it is owned and operated by a Turkish company. I don't remember exactly what the operating company was called because it had a different name. But it's operating under Bergen Air. Okay. It had another name. Anyways, all the... The crew are also operating for this Turkish company. Preface. Backing up a little bit, this entire report was in Spanish. It was. Now I'm sure you're all very confused. 
Turkish airplane, Turkish crew. Does that mean it, in Spanish. it crashed near Spain? No. no. Not even close. At all. But it was in a Spanish-speaking country. Oh. So you will you will have to forgive the potential mistranslations. I at least am like half fluent in Spanish. So I we plugged it into Google Translate and then I took it and fixed it. Yes. It's always a fun thing when we have to do these the kinds of things. So bear with us when we deal with these. This is how we get things like turtles. Yes. And there's, electricity. There's nothing that weird. Well, from Spanish, it probably wouldn't be. From Chinese, yeah. So the captain for this flight was Ahmet Erdem. Or Erdem. He was 62 years old at the time. And he had 24,750 hours total. Holy sh**. <laughs> I mean, he is in his 60s, so that kind of makes sense. Yes. Of which he had 1,875 hours on the 757, so... Not a lot out of all of his hours, that's for sure, but still plenty enough to definitely be a qualified 757 pilot. There was a second captain on board, a relief captain, because we'll talk about it, but these legs for these flights are pretty long. And overall, the entire journey that they're going on is quite long, and they only have one crew. So, it's all part of it. Mulis Evernesoglu. Oh, God. You want to try this? Cause <laughs> no, it'll be even worse. Yes, the, what, exactly what you said. Yep. He was 51 years old at the time, and he had about 15,000 hours total, so also pretty darn experienced. He had 121 and a half hours on the 757. Oh, about, on the 757. I was yeah. like, period? No, That's so, not okay. No. no. And then the first officer... The first officer's name... His name was Aikut Gergen. Yeah, Aikut Gergen. He was 34 years old at the time, and he had 3,500 hours total, so by far and away, the least number of hours in the cockpit, of which... 71 hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, he had 71 hours and 45 minutes. On the 757. So all of his time was also gained in the last three months on the 757. The flight was originally scheduled scheduled to take place on a 767. This was to be a charter flight from Puerto Plata in the Dominican Republic. Oh, okay. To Gander in Canada. Canada. To Berlin. To Frankfurt. Okay, then. This was a charter flight for a group. I'm not sure anything about why they were traveling and why they needed a charter, but they did. It was originally scheduled to be on a 767, which... Comparable airplane, but a little bit larger. But it's the same type rating. So if you're type rated on a 767, you're also type rated on a 757. Right. But they didn't say this explicitly. I think the 767 that they had chartered was a different airline. We all got confused here. Yes. Due to maintenance, however, they had to do a swap. So that is what it was. Because of this, the crew also had to be changed out for the 757 instead of the 767. Bergenier's operations had to get in touch with the whole crew and make this happen, basically, very, very quickly. Day of. I'm confused why they're using a Turkish airline to charter them. We'll talk about that. From the Dominican all the way to Germany and not anywhere near Turkey. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We'll talk a little bit about this, but I can touch it in brief unless you really talk about it. I do not talk about it at all. Okay. This airplane... 
came from Turkey with the crew on a different charter flight. It arrived in the Dominican Republic, and then it sat there waiting for another charter to be picked up to carry back over to Europe, where then eventually they'd carry back to Turkey. It has now been three weeks since then. 20 days it sat on the ground in the Dominican Republic. The crew and all... Oh, that doesn't bode well. (laughs) Waiting for another charter to pick them up and carry them home. Oh, jeez. Okay. Not exactly the best way of doing things, if you ask me. But no, that's a thing. It's better than, I don't know, Barrow, Alaska. Yep. At least you're in the Caribbean. Yeah. I mean, at least they're there, but yeah. Bergen Air notified the flight crew about two to four-ish hours before they were due to depart. So, like, it happened like that. Waiting 20 days and all of a sudden they're like, you're going. <laughs> like right now. Like right now. Well, that's Get your stuff. This took some time, but the crew arrived by 10.15 p.m. for the flight. They were delayed an hour more, a little over an hour, actually, as they had to wait for one of the cabin crew members to arrive. 176 passengers and 13 crew boarded the flight for a total of 189 people on board. Yeah, 13 crew. That's a lot for a 757. They need to get them back to Europe. Yeah. There's probably relief crew built into that. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure there is. I just don't know where they put them because... It's already, like, normally a crew of five, and that is not a big airplane inside. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know, but that's what they're carrying. They must have had some passenger seats available. The airplane pushed back and began taxiing to the runway. The airplane was then cleared for takeoff by the air traffic controller at the airport. They took the runway and began their takeoff roll at 11.42 p.m. and 11 seconds. The captain was to be pilot flying for this leg, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring which meant that the first officer was making the call-outs on the takeoff roll. Right. As the airplane gained speed, the first officer called out 80 knots. At that time, the captain looked at his speed indicator, where he's supposed to normally say checked, by verifying that it is the same speed. And he noted out loud that it was not working. There was no speed there. It read like 30 knots. Something like that. The first officer responded that that his was working normally. The captain asked the that the first officer continued to read off speeds as they accelerated down the runway for takeoff. They lifted off of the runway normally at 11.42 p.m. and 47 seconds. Moments after takeoff, the captain stated that his speedometer appeared to be working again. At 11.44 p.m. and 7 seconds, the aircraft was at 3,500 feet when the captain asked that the center autopilot control be activated. So there's three autopilots. It's kind of complicated how this all works. It determines what instruments it uses, what sensors it uses, and also how it functions, certain modes and such. But there's a left, right, and center, and they selected the center autopilot. This is not entirely pertinent to what's happening. Okay. This is just... They made a decision and they went with it. Yep. The first officer activated the autopilot at that time. Just 18 seconds later, a caution alert sounded in the cockpit. The flight crew looked at the onboard computer, which indicated that there was an issue with the rudder ratio, as well as with the mock speed trim. For the next 15 seconds, the captain kept repeating himself, saying that something strange was happening as he scanned the cockpit for answers. The first officer acknowledged that there was definitely an issue, and then told the captain that his speed indicator is showing that they are flying at 200 knots and decreasing, so slowing down. The aircraft was at about 5,300 feet at the time. The captain looked at his speed indicator and noted that he was showing a much faster speed of around 327 knots. 
He stated that both speed indicators appeared to be wrong and asked, quote, what can we do, end quote. Mind you, this is still translated, so that's probably roughly what he said, though. He then ordered that the circuit breakers be checked and reset. Which the relief pilot got up to do. Yep, the relief pilot got involved at this point to do all these things. I mean, if he can, why right. not? He's just in the jump seat, so he unbuckled and reached overhead and yep. looked at the circuit breakers. 11.45 p.m. and 28 seconds while climbing through 6,688 feet. The overspeed warning began sounding in the cockpit. The captain responded that it is not reliable and should be ignored for the time being. Something's just strange. At the time, the aircraft nose was at about 15 degrees nose up pitch attitude, which is pretty high for a normal climb, which is yeah. between 5 and 10 degrees. 15's a little little heavy on the climb. That's about the max they ever usually do in airline it operations. It seems like they're a little focused on the speed issue that they probably... Something is strange. Something strange is going on. The captain ordered that the circuit breaker be pulled for the speed indications, which was done, at which time the overspeed warning, of course, ceased because this is tied to that system. Right. And they reset the circuit breaker. Right. They reset the circuit breaker. 11.45 p.m. and 52 seconds, the aircraft was at 7,040 feet when the stick shaker activated. Uh Uh-oh. The throttles were then brought to idle momentarily before being advanced again just five seconds later. The airplane peaked at that time at 7,132 feet at an attitude of about 21 degrees nose up. The autopilot was then disengaged. The airplane pitch began varying between 5 degrees and 21 degrees for several moments. 11.46 p.m. and 31 seconds, the airplane was descending through 5,984 feet, so now they've gone down quite a bit, about 1,500 feet. As the captain stated, quote, we're not ascending. What can I do? End quote. How about turn around and go back to the airport? Something's up. If you're really having that many problems with the speed indication, turn around, go back. It's not worth it to try to make well, it. Well, right now away. they're falling out of the sky. Right. So well, something there's, is. There's that. They gotta figure something out. But like out. when that started happening, he should have been like, mm, we should turn around. More than that. We'll get there. I already know what happened. It's fine. Yep. I already know what problem it is. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yep. You probably already figured this one out. Everyone there's else a, probably does, too. There's a few more key things going to happen here, but... You think you know, but oh, you wait. have no idea. <laughs> yeah. The first officer stated that he must stop the descent and told the captain that he was selecting the altitude hold function of the autopilot to hopefully stabilize the airplane. 21 seconds later, the captain asks where the throttles are set, and the first officer stated that they are in a reduced setting, so they're not at full. The captain then asks frantically that they be increased. Yeah. Give me power. The first officer pushed the throttles forward and responded that they were advanced. The power to both engines was advanced to full throttle, but two seconds later the left engine suddenly reduced to a slower speed, while the right engine remained at full power. The airplane began losing all control at that point. Well, yeah. 11.47 p.m. and 3 seconds, just 4 seconds after the throttle adjustment, the airplane was at 3,520 feet and descending rapidly as the nose was now at a pitch attitude of negative 53 degrees, heading for negative 80, while the bank angle was now at a negative 100 degree left wing down. Oh, no. Six seconds later, the GPWS started to sound in the cockpit, whoop, whoop, pull up, as they continued descending rapidly. The airplane came back to a 
more level attitude, we'll call. It's not really. But was still spinning and rolling and pitching rapidly in different directions as it fell nearly straight down. Just two seconds later, the airplane struck the water 14 nautical miles northwest of Puerto Plata, only about six minutes after takeoff. The aircraft immediately broke up upon the heavy impact with the ocean. The air traffic controller tried to contact the flight with no response and no sign of the aircraft on the radar. At that time, the air traffic controller alerted rescue operations of a possible crash and the rough location, the last known radar location. Coast Guards and the U.S. Navy all rushed to the area and searched for any possible survivors and wreckage. It took some time, but eventually they started to see debris floating on the water. They started to collect the debris and such, and a little while later they began coming across a few bodies floating, unfortunately. It became quickly evident that most of the airplane wreckage had sunk to the bottom of the ocean, and there were no survivors. All 189 on board perished in the accident. This happened so fast. From the moment I think they got the stick shaker to the moment that they impacted was about a minute and a half. That's not very long. Not at all. Uh, My opinion was when they were having different speed indications before Mm -hmm. takeoff, they should have stopped. Yeah. Yes. You're correct. A hundred percent correct. You are right. You want to know why? Yeah. It's a pedostatic problem, isn't it? (laughs) I told you we'd predict this. Yep. It's a pedostatic problem. Something's covered that shouldn't be covered. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. (laughs) Let's, Let's get into it, and then we'll talk about how eerily similar this is to some other things. Yeah. Okay, this investigation was performed by the Dominican General Directorate of Civil Aviation, or DGAC. Yes, those letters are out of order. That's because it's DGAC in Spanish. And this is not the same DGAC as last week? No. With the assistance of the NTSB. Mm. Well, they were in a 57. Yes. And they're also right next to the United States. Well, yes. It's just the most help they can get. They set up shop in a hotel south of the crash site where they were able to coordinate both reporters and victims' families. That's always unfortunate. Wreckage and passenger belongings began washing up on shore, so there was concern about looting, but not a whole lot to be done about it. It's just how it is. Yeah. We don't talk about it a lot. I only mention it because it was in the Air Disasters episode, which is actually a Mayday episode. What they are more interested in at this point is getting a hold of the black boxes. The recorders each have an underwater locator beacon that emits a signal for 30 days, and they needed to get to them before those 30 days were up. But the water was 7,200 feet deep, too deep for divers. The NTSB enlisted the help of the U.S. Navy. I was going to say, the Navy? Who had an unmanned submersible called the Curve, or C-U-R-V, no E, 111. But it took time for that to be transported to the Caribbean, so let's go with what investigators had in the meantime. Radar, ATC, and maintenance records. Investigators interviewed the air traffic controllers and got the recordings of those conversa- that conversation, as well as the radar sweep, and found that the crew never declared an emergency or said anything. It's, I have to say, considering even just before takeoff, <laughs> they were already having problems. Yeah. A little bit of a red flag that they didn't just say, all right, it didn't really fix itself. After we took off. Well, they thought it did, remember? Well, they did, and then it stopped working again before the stick shaker activated. So it's like, Uh all right, maybe we should go back and figure it out, but they didn't do that. And there was nothing in the radar to indicate what might have gone wrong either. 
So, was something mechanically wrong? Investigators interviewed the maintenance guys on the island as the plane had been stored for 20 days. Some things said 25 days, including the Mayday episode. We think it's just 20 days. Pretty sure it's just 20 days. Instructions unclear. Either way, it was a long ass time. Yeah, a lot longer. Somewhere than, around three weeks. A lot longer than an airplane normally, an airliner normally sits on the ground yeah. with a crew. Yeah. Yeah. Between the interviews and the maintenance records they provided, nothing seemed to be wrong mechanically. From the debris that had been recovered, there was no evidence of an in-flight fire or explosion, but they definitely hit the water hard. There were coffee cans from the galley area that were compressed into discs. Ooh. They hit really hard. And flat for that to have happened. I really don't like that. Mm -hmm. There is an animation of it in the Mayday episode, and it made me uncomfortable. Like, planes don't just pancake into the water. And that's what happened. Or at least they shouldn't. Right. Three weeks after the crash, on February 28th, the submersible arrived. Thank goodness. Did take quite some time. And it had a receiver for the beacon signal, which was very handy. It took two hours to descend to the 7,200 feet, but it was able to fairly quickly locate one black box out in the open in 90 minutes, and the other in two hours buried under debris. It had a mechanical arm, and they were just, like, moving stuff at one point. They're like, we can't see anything, let's just move metal, I guess. They even said in the episode, they were like, it had the two mechanical arms, and they managed to get a hold of the first black box, and then they just... Pulled that arm back with the black box and just left it there. Oh, well, yeah. Well, they used the other <laughs> arm to, like, too. search around and find the other one. The recorders, once they were brought to the surface, were put in coolers of fresh water to prevent any oxidation and were immediately delivered to the NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. for analysis. Once graphed, the data from the flight data recorder presented a very strange scenario. The initial climb seemed normal, but once the autopilot was activated, the nose pitched up to the maximum allowed by autopilot, 15 degrees. That's concernedly high for a climb to cruise altitude, but that is probably driven by the airspeed. What does the airspeed read at that point? Way too high is the answer. So high, it couldn't have possibly been correct given the engine and attitude configuration. So investigators turned to the cockpit voice recorder to see if they could find out what the crew was seeing of this. And this is where they discovered chaos. Complete and utter Chaos. Starting from the takeoff roll, it was quickly evident that the captain's airspeed indicator wasn't reading correctly when the first officer performed the airspeed indicator check at 80 knots, but it was deemed not serious enough to not keep going. Well, little did you know. (sighs) It seemed that the captain's gauge came to life during the climb, abating their concerns. Once the autopilot was set, the crew quickly became overwhelmed with a host of warnings, many of them contradictory, but they were definitely most confused about their airspeed. They were getting an overspeed warning, and the captain's airspeed was reading the maximum airspeed allowed at that altitude, 350 knots, while the first officers read 200 knots and dropping. The captain proclaimed them to both be wrong and struggled to find a solution to the issue. First things first, what would cause the two indicators to read differently? As with a couple of incidents we have discussed before, there could be a blockage with the pedostatic system. Hey. If the static ports were blocked, like with Aero Peru Flight 603 in Episode 106, that would cause airspeed indication issues. But maintenance staff said they didn't cover them at all, so never mind that one. But what about the pedo tubes? Can you stop reading words right from my screen? (laughs) (laughs) 
A blockage in the pitot tube on the captain's side would cause erroneous airspeed readings. That's what happened with Air France 447 in episode 37. I was just going to say, it sounds exactly like Air France 447. But that was icing, and this is the Caribbean. This also means that someone probably did a stupid because the airplane was set, sitting there for too long, and it had a cover, and they didn't take the cover off. Not no. exactly, actually. Really? I, that's what I would assume. This isn't quite so, as... So, so the, if, on a scale of 1 to 10 of stupid, that's like a 5. This is like a 7 or higher. I don't know. How does it get stupider, you may ask? Definitely, I think Aero Peru was still worse. We'll talk a little more about Aero Peru in a second. Mm. Gasp! What if they left the pedostatic covers on from that 20 days the airplane was on the ground? Investigators (laughs) interviewed the maintenance staff and asked if that was a possibility. The answer was no. Obviously, they would say that. So are you sure you couldn't have forgotten them? No, there's no chance we forgot because there weren't covers on them to begin with. The plane sat there for 20 days without pitot tube covers. Would that cause a problem? We'll talk about Well, it's 100% against regulations. Yes. Yeah, it seems really weird to me they wouldn't put pitot, but I feel like... But it means they weren't left on. Yeah. They depicted this in the episode, though, because they were asking the maintenance crew on the ground, who aren't with the airline. They're just local. They are. They are? Yes, they are with the airline. Okay. But they depict it as though... They were almost frustrated that they weren't sent with tube covers. Yeah. For the plane. Shouldn't they have them at the airport? No. I don't know. Necessarily. They're pretty much they're like I don't know what you expected us to do. Fabricate them? I don't know. I don't know if that's actually what happened. I'm just saying that's how it was depicted. Yeah. Well, I guess the only way we'll find out the answer is to send the submersible down to get the pedo tubes. Yeah. So we'll come back to that later. Regardless of how the faulty airspeed indication came about, that shouldn't have brought down a plane. No. This is one of the most senior crew members of this airline. Plus, there are five indicators on board for airspeed. Three airspeed indicators, one for the captain, one for the first officer, and one in the middle, the standby, as well as two ground speed indicators, one on each of the pilot panels. Mm -hmm. How did one faulty one cause such chaos? Well, it turns out that the autopilot needs to get airspeed data from somewhere to make the autopilot decisions. And on the Boeing 757... It was from the captain's side, wasn't uh it? Uh-huh. Damn. Man, why do they do that? Why do they... Why? God damn it. (laughs) This is just a thing. The crew started getting rudder ratio and mock air trim warnings. And the captain looked between the two airspeed indicators and considered both wrong. Which, okay... Here's my problem with that, right? Mm -hmm. They were already talking about how the first officers probably was correct. Right. And investigators could not figure out why he thought both were wrong. Yeah, I I would understand why he would think his is wrong. Because it is. his is absolutely, like, there's no way, right? Yeah. The aircraft's not, if you were going that fast, you would experience buffeting, you would experience issues with airframe stuff, and they weren't, they didn't Look at Miranda having better thought process than the captain. (laughs) But here's the thing but with that. I, I don't understand why he would think the first officer's side was incorrect. Because it was so low. Well, but that that's the same thing that happened with Air France 447, though. You're right. Here's why, though. I can kind of understand. I mean, it's not... You can't prove this. But because it was descending, and in his mind, we are climbing and we are at climb thrust. We have autopilot on. Why would we be losing speed? In his mind, this just isn't a possibility. Also, it's... It's 10 o'clock, right? It's probably dark. It's 11 o'clock. 
Well, it is the middle. Yes, of the night. it is dark. It's almost midnight. It's dark. So I would understand. Like originally, if there was light outside, you could see the horizon outside, right. and so you'd no. understand. Yes, we are going down. But because there was this, I mean, almost like I said, almost exactly what happened with Air France four four seven, except it wasn't icing. Mm-hmm. More specifically, it's very close to Aero Peru. It is extremely similar. Yes. So he had the relief captain reset the circuit breaker, which turned off the first two warnings, but then the overspeed warning went off. Right. Driven by the captain's erroneous airspeed indicator. Right. Well, I guess we're going too fast. Let's pull back power. That was the biggest mistake that could have been made. That's when the aircraft began stalling, having lost what little power slash airspeed slash lift they had. Once there's not enough air going over the wing, it loses its lift properties and the aircraft stalls, initiating the stick shaker. But this is completely contradictory. Now we have an overspeed warning and a stick shaker. Which means the stick shaker's on a different... System. Point is, it's like, what do you listen to? Well, and again, same thing that was happening for Air France. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't remember too, too much about Air Peru. I remember the instance of, like, they did crash because they were getting erroneous warnings because the static port was covered. Like, I remember that. Yes. But... I remember specifically because uh, Air France 447 was so big mm-hmm. and we covered so much about it. Yeah. Exactly what's happening. They had the stick shaker and an overspeed warning going at the same time. Right. And they were descending and they were stalling. Right. So did Aero Peru. And they were also in the dark, in the night, over an ocean where they couldn't see anything. I do remember that. And they were flying themselves up, down, sideways, backwards until they fell into the ocean. Sound familiar? Oh, and at this point, the autopilot just disconnected. I think it's so interesting that it didn't automatically disengage itself. It is supposed to. No, it just did. Well, I mean, earlier. Yes. I don't know. Eventually, it did. I was surprised it it didn't do it earlier. I know it would eventually have done it, because it's like, too much information, doesn't make sense, can't do it. Well, this is the point we've talked about before, how during a stall... We should have the autopilot disengage. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was a, it For was a variety pro- of reasons. <laughs> it was programmed to do that. So it did. The relief pilot at this point began yelling for the crew, mostly the captain, to look at their ADIs or their artificial horizon, which would have shown that they were pitching nose up, contributing to the stall. Stall, yeah. The correct thing to do would have been to... Push down. Which is what the first officer was saying to do. So why didn't he do it himself? As Nick discussed in the very beginning, the first officer didn't have a whole lot of experience in this aircraft, and the captain was one of the most experienced of the airline. This creates a power dynamic that makes it that much more difficult for the first officer to take the initiative to take control of the airplane. That, and there's a cultural standard in the Middle East to respect your elders and not question them. We've talked about this before. I don't like this. There's a reason there's multiple pilots in this cockpit. There's a reason that you are able to do so. If you think that they're doing something wrong, take over the aircraft. You are correct. This sentiment is much reduced now in the roaring 2020s, but back in the 90s, it was still very prevalent. The captain once again aggravated the situation by increasing power to the engines while they had a high angle of attack. Which just made it worse. So the engines didn't have enough airflow to accommodate the request for increased power, so the left engine shut down. The left engine literally surged and pulled back. Remember when I said that two seconds after the... Yeah, it's because it just didn't have the air, so it just reduced on its own. Now with an asymmetric power setting, the stalling plane has entered a spin. Almost immediately. 
Investigators ran a series of simulator sessions with other crew members, experienced or not, to see how they would have reacted in the same situation with their current training. Even the most senior of crew members froze and were baffled by the contradicting warnings and didn't know the best course of action. Uh-oh. It's a training problem. This will be addressed in the recommendation section. Now for a vital question that Miranda has probably yelled about at this point, but my sequencing of the story hasn't allowed for until now. Why didn't they abort takeoff when they knew of the discrepancy? <laughs> I already said it! I already said it! You see how I wrote that into my script? It's I already like said I, it. It's like I know her or something. Great question! We have three guesses, and it could have been any, all, or none of them. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Great. One, which Nick didn't bring up at all. It was raining. was oh. raining. And the crew could have been concerned about aborting a takeoff in such conditions. Maybe they could have over- overrun the runway. Investigators analyzed the runway to determine if it would have been a risk, and they determined it wouldn't have been. They only would have needed about 2,300 feet of runway to stop, and unless it's been lengthened since then, this is a 10,000-foot runway. Reason two. Crews were trained to avoid high-speed aborted takeoffs. There is an inherent risk to them, no matter if you technically could have made it or not. But if you're having faulty indications, it doesn't matter. And it happened before V1. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I'm like, you can't tell me 80 knots is V1. Which is the whole point of V1. And their V1 was 150 knots, by the way. Their V1, so yeah. they were having erroneous warnings so far back. Like, I don't understand the problem of just like, hey, this isn't right. Maybe we should stop it. This, sure okay. this last reason makes a lot more sense to me personally. The crew had been in the Dominican Republic waiting to fly this plane for weeks. Yeah, they wanted to get out of there. They want to go home. They want. Yeah. They were anxious to get home and may not have wanted delay and or cancel. This is a variation of get their itis known as the homesick factor. It's not really known that, but that's what I'm calling it. I'm a, a fish. No, I'm not. But wait, we have one more question that hasn't been answered. What blocked the pedo tube? Yeah, the f- Well, they were never recovered. Oh, shit. Okay. So it's hard to say with 100% certainty, but pilots on the island were familiar with something that might have caused it. And this is basically their best guess. And to be honest, it's a pretty darn good guess. This is the point at which I'm asking Miranda to pull up her phone to Google an image. Common on the island is a species of wasp known as the black and yellow mud dauber. Stop! There was a wasp's nest inside the pedo tube. You're joking. These wasps are known for making their nest by piling mud into tube-like structures. So they also like to find tube-like the structures. The same diameter as a pedo tube. What? That's crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would have never, ever guessed that. They had to, like, hire entomologists. Holy crap. What am I looking up? The black and yellow mud dauber. D-A-U-B-E-R. It's a nasty-looking wasp. Ew. <laughs> It's not even yellow. It's just black. Yeah. It's a scary looking wasp. These guys would have had 20 days to build their nest. More than enough time. These are solitary wasps, by the way. These do not work in groups like most wasps. These wasps live alone, so they also build their habitats alone, but they're very, very good at doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Tubes. Tubes. They make tubes. Tubes. Holy Now, here's a secondary question. How did the captain's indicator seem to come alive if it was completely blocked? It's a good question, huh? This happens when the air that is blocked inside the pitot tube begins to expand as the altitude increases, making the indicator think that the pressure inside the tube is coming from airflow rather than just air expansion. 
this actually is not the first time that a mud dauber has caused this. Oddly enough? Well, it might be the first time, but not the last. If you go to the Wikipedia page for mud daubers, which I did, you'll find an entire section entitled Airplane Incidents. Oh. Obviously, it describes this accident first, but then it goes on to describe an incident in 2015 where a Gulfstream had damage from overpressurization because the outflow valve safety port was plugged up by a mud dauber nest. So the pressure literally just couldn't release from the cabin. Which is insane. So that's what I've got for this episode. That's crazy. Is it not? And now I understand, though, why they have to have pedo two covers. Because it's like, if you had covers, this wouldn't have happened. Things don't get in there. Yeah. But I never would have thought a wasp nest. Yeah, a bug. <laughs> never would have thought. That's why after last time we recorded, I'm like, bugs, man. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, Holy granted, crap. we can't prove it. Like, the pedo tube's 8,000 feet below the ocean. And it's surface. probably embedded in the ocean floor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I said 8,000. But it makes sense, though. It's a good hypothesis of what happened, right? Because it, they were uncovered. It's the same size that they usually would put their nests in. It's a nice tubular area. Like, it makes sense. Yep. Tubular, dude. It's tubular. But no, it does. Absolutely. Of course. So I would totally... And then that would make sense why if they did a walk around, they didn't see anything because it's now, inside the pedo tube. Yeah, you I didn't talk it. about this at all, but they were supposed to have checked the pedo tubes. But, I mean, why would you think to look inside? Yeah. If it, the outside looks fine, it you just assume it'd be fine. Normally you don't. I mean, it's not but very But the maintenance common. manual said they technically should have. But I understand right. why they didn't also. It is. Who does that? Not an easy thing to do, actually, because it's a pretty complicated little device and you'd have to, like, take it apart. I mean, you can kind of eyeball in there, but not really. And they were trying to get these guys together to go in four hours. Mm -hmm. I think they had a couple of other things to check. Other things to note. The engines also didn't have covers. They did not have pickling covers, which kind of freaks me out given the humidity and salinity of the air. Salinity means salt for those of you who aren't up on the lingo. It can cause corrosion in yes. the engine. So that's kind of concerning, too. It's not great. Well, since the airplane was on the ground for that long, I mean, here's my huge problem with this, right? It's a variety of things. One, having an airplane on the ground that long without any protection of the spaces where animals and things will go and nest. Like, even in engines, because birds will nest in engines and oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. And it can cause problems when you start the engines up, because then it get sucked back and then it causes issues so so this has actually been a particularly pertinent thing with the pandemic so when there was a huge decrease in air travel airlines all over the world sent their airplanes to deserts one of the big ones is victorville in california and they do this thing that i have said previously here is they pickle the airplane which is basically they preserve it they cover the engines they cover the pitot tubes they do all of this stuff so that they can unpickle it relatively fast, not have to do a whole lot of maintenance, still got to do some, but then they can just go fly it again. Not a huge issue. You don't have birds nesting in it. Yeah. Right. That being said, there, um, I think it was Biden went, um, needed to go to a summit in Europe and the press corps had chartered a Delta plane to follow him as they do. Some press get to go on Air Force One, but not the entire press corps. So they go in a separate plane. Their plane had to be changed 
because they went to go start the plane and the APU wouldn't start. This plane had just come from being unpickled. They went to go to the APU and the entire thing was filled with cicadas. Ew. A massive nest. There's a picture of it and it's unbelievable. Ew. So, yeah, still pertinent. I don't know if you, how to pickle an APU. The same way they do everything else, they just cover it. So, and For this certain. was like in the midst of cicada season, obviously. Yeah. Well, and the other the other issue I have too is also when they were getting erroneous I especially speed indication stuff, my first thought would be Stop. we have we have a pedostatic problem. Yeah. That's my instant first thought whenever that happens, especially right. on the ground, cuz you're like, "Oh wait, no 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 no. Something's wrong. We need to stop. We need to figure it out." Right. Because you can get into the air and then stuff starts happening and going wrong and there's a bunch of warnings and then you don't have the brain capacity or the ability to figure out what it is and turn around and go back. Right. But you can always stop the airplane, especially when you're so not close to V1. Yeah. But also think about it. Why do you know these things? What two flights have we covered that you know these things? The two flights we literally just talked about. Air France 447. Both was in them. 2009. And Aero Peru, Aero Peru. Was eight months later. After this. Oh. Well, there's that too. I mean, understandably, if if it's never really happened before, like I kinda understand that being a problem. But also, like, I don't know. Maybe it's because airlines didn't figure out what what kind of problems that can create because well, it hadn't happened yet. But we'll talk a little bit about this, but there's actually some pretty specific reasons why this ended up happening. Talk about it in the yeah. second part. Yeah. I know, uh, by the way, before we go to break, I am playing Monday Night Quarterback, right? Like, I understand that. I am not the <laughs> pilot. Yeah. I am, I was not on that aircraft, right? I get that. Please don't come for me. I'm just saying the first indication to stop would have been, oh, I have 30 knots. I have 80 knots. Uh, nope. You're also <laughs> talking Monday yeah. Night Quarterback 26 years later. Exactly. Right. So I completely understand people you are going to be like... Well, you weren't on that airplane. I'm like, yes, I know. I realize that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but like I said it happened fast too. A minute and a half between. Oh man! Stick if they had just the stopped yep. on the ground, though, it would have not happened. It does us. make me really happy, though, that before he was even done with the story, you knew what happened. It means that we have learned things here, and hopefully, our listeners are also in the same boat. They're like, it was this. It was a pedostatic system. I was, I'm like, I'm sure someone else is like. Mm. Pedostatic problem. But I can really appreciate this one anyways for a couple reasons. I mean, for one, it this came up in Aero Peru 603. It comes up on the Wikipedia page. It came up in the Air Disasters episode. It's just so similar, and it was only eight months later that it completely makes sense. But also, I can appreciate why this one in and of itself is so unique, because Bucks? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that one was duct tape. Yeah. Yeah, that one is like clearly someone messed up. This one is like I can major. understand. I can entirely understand how they messed this. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm not good or say. bad maintenance practices. I really can actually still understand how they would have missed this. This oh, is yeah. not an easy thing to see. No, those pedo tubes are easily 15 feet up off the ground on uh -huh. this airplane, and it's a. I mean, it's a hole the size of a pea. Yeah. So y you can't tell. I mean, you're trying to look down that tube. You're going to have to take the thing apart, but that is not easy. I bet you no one's made that mistake since. No. Based on the fact that there's only one other incident on the Wikipedia page for mud daubers. Right. This is why you have covers. 
Just make sure you remember to remove them. My question is, I wonder if the pedo heat would have flushed it out or melted the nest. The nest? Um, It takes really high temperatures to melt mud, which at that point is just solidified dirt. Yeah. Probably killed the wasp. Poor oh, guy. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> the wasp is dead. <laughs> For sure. But... I mean, would it have allowed at least a little bit more air through? No. Probably not, depending on how how full it was. How yeah. plugged. Yep. There might have also been, oh God, larvae. Who knows? And eggs. I hate this conversation. Now we're going to break. Yeah, break. and we'll come back with all the normal stuff. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As we mentioned during the break, this is why I live where the wind hurts my face. So that wasps... Don't, like that, don't burrow inside right. of airplanes. We still have wasps, mind you. They're just the small ones. Yeah. And they don't, their nests aren't made of mud. Uh, we were just looking at uh, the other flight, the Gulfstream, was in Fort Lauderdale. I'm like, ugh. I'm like, this is why we don't go to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have to read this section now. There are no findings. Which is quite interesting, considering everything that happened. Yes. So this is the part where Google translated it, and I said, that doesn't sound right, so I retranslated it. So forgive me if I'm incorrect. I only have a couple years of Spanish under my belt. The probable cause of the accident was the crew's failure to recognize stick shaker activation as imminent warning of a stall, and the crew's failure to execute the procedures for stall recovery. Before the stick shaker warning, there was confusion of the flight crew due to erroneous indications of relative speed increase and an overspeed warning. A series of events contributed to the accident. The discipline of the flight crew, the administration of crew resource management, compliance with basic aviation procedures and capability. Damn. Yep. Little knowledge of the aircraft by the flight crew, systems of the aircraft, relative speed indications, autopilot, aircraft procedures, alternate instrument source selector. We'll talk a little bit about this because this is very important. Flight with little dependable relative speed. Maintenance practice. Lack of compliance with Bergen Air Mechanics in not installing the covers of the pedo system while the aircraft was stationary on the ground, and the failure to run the tests on the pedo static system before returning to service after extended time on the ground. Additional factors. The flight crew may not have been physically or morally rested. I assume they have to, they're saying mentally. I don't, like, there's only one translation for the word moralmente. I can understand why, though... I mean, mentally, but anyways, like rested period they'd be talking about this is because this flight is happening at almost midnight and they've been staying in this time zone for 20 days now. Yeah. So they're me, adjusted. Yeah. Let me keep going. <laughs> they may not have been physically and morally rested and prepared to fly on the trip due to unexpected crew call time during their spare time. Bergen Air Company training did not include administration of crew resource management. That's not great. And was a combination of outside source training that lacked continuity and integrated approaches to maximize the flight crew efficiency. 
The Manual of Operations of the Boeing 757-767 does not contain detailed information noting the flight crew procedures with checklists appropriate verification to show a discrepancy in the relative airspeed indications, the simultaneous activation of the offset of the speed match and relation of the EICS systems. That was the part I could not figure out the right translation to. Warnings and flight with speed relatively unreliable. Is it just, like, how, how do you abbreviate that? The ACAS system? E-I-C-A-S? I've, I okay. don't know. I'm not as familiar with the ECAS, whatever it is. The EICAS system of the Boeing 757-767 aircraft does not include an alert of caution or warning sign when an erroneous relative speed indication signal is detected. Yeah, it probably would have helped. So. Although they kind of already knew it was a problem. Right. Yes, but there's not something... There, that is there today, spoiler, that says discrepancy between so let's indicators. Talk, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that just happened there, because there's a couple of very, very, very key things that just came up in that probable cause. Number one of which is the switch. They could have changed the source data for the autopilot. The autopilot, could, if they just switched it to the first officers using the switch which is simple, literally as simple as going from source one to source two, the autopilot would have functioned just fine. They wouldn't have overspeeded or stalled. But they didn't know that. It wasn't in their training. Right. And to be fair, so I would have never thought to do that. Well. I did. If you were trained, you would know. Now, here's, it makes sense because his stuff is all correct. Right. So if you switch it to the autopilot on his side, it would use his pitot tube, and then everything and would, would have been fine. it function just fine. And there's actually a third option where you can switch it to that third indicator, too. Right. Um, That's a super backup, though. Yes. There is one discrepancy in the air, in the Mayday episode in that they said they didn't have that functionality at oh, all. No, it was built in. And it was added later? No, it was there. They, no one just knew it was there. So then there's two other things, and you almost segued into it. One, training. Yes. Training was huge here. This will come up in the recommendations, but enormous. It didn't, they didn't train on this well. Or on crew resource management, which I'm like, this is 20 years after Tenerife. It's a Turkish airline, I though. Know. So we were talking about the Middle East stuff, about yeah. having it's, issues with elders. That doesn't surprise me because it's come up in episodes that we've covered that were in the 90s, even in the early 2000s, where this is a problem in some Middle Eastern and Asian countries because that's just how their culture is. Right. But that's not how aviation is. Right. You got to stop doing the, oh, but this is how we've always done it. That's not how this works. Yeah. Obviously, if the first officer knew what was happening and he had just had the wherewithal to take over the airplane, he could have saved Right. When when the the way it was depicted in Mayday, he just sat there with his hands on his lap and was like, "We we should adjust this. We should do that." And I'm like, "I I don't know if I could have sat there and just kept my hands on my lap." Right. The problem here, we can get into this, is Bergen Air went under almost immediately after this accident. As with some well, ax value jet. Yeah. Big reason why is money. They didn't have a lot. So they didn't put a lot into training. They didn't put a lot into safety. It's also the reason that the airplane stayed on the ground for 20 days. Because they couldn't afford to fly at home without a charter. Yeah, that's a little not great. Not good at all. So it's a very small company in Turkey. And they went, on, went under immediately after this accident because it just it did them in. 
financially and everything. It's just, that was it. But before the accident, I mean, it was a number one factor too. I mean, and they just, it caused problems with training. It caused problems with safety. I, it's a big thing. Yeah. So one of the other things that came up in that probable cause and the last really major thing is that there is no actual warning for those for discrepancy. discrepancy. What it does is create a warning that says rudder ratio and mock trim. Yeah, I remember. Mock speed trim. I remember. Which are so weird. Yeah. So let's get into the recommendations because these things do come up and it's important. Once again, these are translated. And yep. I did not go through these and proofread them, unlike okay. my part. So good luck. It's okay, because I'm not going to read these outright. We'll just go through them, because I already kind of skimmed through, and I know what they're all about. The first one is exactly about that. It's about the mock speed trim and the rudder ratio. And what they're saying is that Boeing should, one, create a solution for that, switch it so that it tells you there's a discrepancy. In the speeds. In the speeds, and that that's what's actually happening, and that that's causing an issue. But more importantly, they're saying that they should train or put in the manual in the first place that this could mean... That exact problem. The so that the crews, the static problem, yeah. So that the crews would have been trained on it, or at least it would have been in the manual somewhere. So, so that when they looked it up. Right. If they had tried to look it up, they didn't even try. But. Right. I mean, if they had been able to look at a checklist, an emergency checklist, and it's like, oh, these two issues appear, this is the situation that's happening. At the very least, if Boeing had put that somewhere, smaller chance, but more chance than they had of knowing what was wrong. And that was recommended to the FAA, I think, to Boeing, and also the ICAO. Yep. Well, yeah, because, again, we talk about eight months later was Aero Peru, and then in 2009 was Air France 447, right? So both of those a little bit different, but if they had had appropriate checklists and things, they would have figured out what the heck was going on. Right. So along with that comes everything related to that switch. So they're talking about systems in relation to the blockage of pitot tubes and the erroneous readings and how to counteract that and the immediate actions to be taken by a crew should there be a discrepancy. And it should be as simple as flip that switch to the known working system because then at least the airplane would fly. Yes, the autopilot would function, and it wouldn't put itself in a dangerous situation like it did. So that's a big area of concern, of course. Crew resource management. Well, obviously. Yes. Huge. There was no crew resource management. Crew resource management, but then also training. And so this hits, the training piece hits interesting, because the company that actually did the training... Was not Bergen Air. It wasn't Bergen Air. It was a third party. You know who it was? Who? United. Really? Yeah, Come on. I, I actually did see that. If you scroll through the appendices, first of all, very mm-hmm. thorough appendices. Yeah, um, they have pictures of everything. They have pictures of their training records. Absolutely. They have their pictures of the training records from United. And they have the United Tulip on them. You know what that means? They were trained here in Denver. Oh. So, obviously, that's a problem. Because what they're saying, too, is that obviously the training that's being provided to third parties by a major airline. They're being contracted to provide this training, but they're doing a very subpar job of doing it. Nobody's checking that, and the airlines are okay with this. That's not okay. No. Because you think about 90s, United 
obviously understands crew resource management. They obviously understand good pilot etiquette, you know. Right. Well, and I don't necessarily know so much that it was the training itself, but what it specifically called out in that um, conclusion section was the lack of continuity. It doesn't sound like it was continuous training all at United. Right. It may have been little portions here and there, which what doesn't happens, which doesn't facilitate any kind of retention. No, for one and two, it makes it very difficult to cover all the bases and to know which ones were covered and which ones weren't. Right. So this is obviously a big problem. And part of what they hit at is having these operations inspectors inspecting that training, inspecting training records and such. What happens and the unfortunate thing is is that they come over, they get the training, and then they go back and how are you supposed to know? Because you're not you're no longer in charge of them. All you can all you have oversight of in the United States is the training done here. So unless they were there on site, watched the whole training happen, like the FAA and the inspectors watched the whole training happen at United, not really their problem once they're over in Turkey or in the Dominican Republic. It's it's concerning to me though that an airline would contract another airline. I'm not saying that it's bad for them to go train at United. United's a good airline. They still do this to this day. Exactly. Because United has a huge training facility here. The largest in the world. I actually actually. went by it the other day because it's pretty Mm -hmm. close to where my new job is. Mm -hmm. It's It's literally across I-70 because that's where Stapleton used to be. Yep. Having been in there. Like right where I work is right where Stapleton used to be. Yeah. And and not that I'm, you know. um, Triangulating Triangulating where I work, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, so having been, we in went there. by it, me and Brendan, because we went down and did some stuff the other day. But we—it's yeah. huge, it's gigantic. It's even. He was like, we we looked across the street. He's like, you know what that is? I was like, no. He was like, that's the United Training Facility. I'm like, holy, sh- that place is huge. Yep, it's even bigger than you realize because it's much bigger on the inside. Oh, it's it's it like sad. a TARDIS, <laughs> but but it really is. You go in there and you're like, my God, this place is. Massive, Massive. Yeah. and they made it even bigger, and they're still making it bigger because they're bringing all the simulators over from Houston. So here's the thing with that: Do you think, for example, let's what's another airline that's based in Denver? Frontier. Frontier. You think Frontier has a sim center like that? Absolutely not. They all go to United. Mm-hmm. Well, the the problem I have though is like, how would the airline in Turkey? One, understand how to reinforce the training they had in the United States when they right. had no idea what they trained for. And two, how are you to know that your pilots are actually fully trained when you don't actually know what they're being trained on? Because right. you're not, you're probably not sending a representative to oversee the whole thing. Exactly. So the pro- that's the problem I have with it. Not that they were using United for training. That probably was a good thing, right. all things considered. But they didn't have any wherewithal to see what they were training, how to reinforce the training, how to make sure pilots are keeping up on training. Like, And I think that's what the investigators were trying to hit more than anything was the lack of continuity right. in the whole everything because really Bergen Air should have a system where they have a checklist on these are all the things you need to be trained on here's what you were trained on in the U.S. here's what you're going to be trained on here here's how we make it pretty you know not continuous it's not continuous continue or continuous or meld together well so that retained yeah so that you have a a well-balanced well-rounded training experience but there just is there needs to be a very strict way of doing this training for retention purposes, for third parties. Right. Because they have to share the, the the sky, just like everybody else. So it's still a big issue. And these days, a little less so. But 
third parties pop up all over the world and companies now, not just the major airlines, but now small companies are starting to buy up their own simulators and provide this training to these third parties at, we'll call it reduced rates. And I immediately not, don't like that. And it's not great. That's not because they don't necessarily it's not it's not necessarily to say that they would have a bad training program, but it's not ideal because the big airlines are going to have the resources to make it good. They have the money. To that's make it good. that's my problem. You're putting money over safety. Right. At that point, because you're saying, oh, you can't pay the full thing. So you'll get an abbreviated version. That's not good. Right. That's not OK with me. Right. And it's not OK with me. That's telling them that you can't pay the money. So you don't get the proper training. Right. So the unfortunate thing that happens is that it goes away from the major airlines and these little companies pop up, but they pop up in countries where they don't have to follow all the same standards. So it's it's not to say that this is a huge issue, but it is something that does still exist, unfortunately. And it's not great. No. But that's pretty much it. And it really is so eerily similar to Aero Peru. I know that I keep hitting on that one. But it literally happened eight months later. It was a 757 in the dark, into the ocean, full of people. In South America. In South America, full of people. In Latin America, more specifically. Yeah. Full of people. More broadly. Yes. And it is mm, just very similar situation where it was very disorienting in the aircraft when a pretty simple system failed. Yeah. This is why they actually hit pretty hard at the FAA and Boeing about certifying the airplane when such a simple but very key system wasn't in the manual fails and it's not in the manual about what might actually be happening there's no caution warnings or anything well mind you by the time that aero peru happened this report wasn't out so they were still very much working on this because it was eight months there was no there's no way for them to know right the other thing though and i know we talked about this a lot uh, when we actually talked about the max in a post episode mm-hmm. right so you're, i don't remember what post episode it was a while ago we watched a documentary about it we talked about it but the problem is is sometimes boeing doesn't know what the problem is until it actually happens because they didn't certify it with blocking pedo tubes or right. static systems like why would they like right how how would you it's not supposed to fly with that stuff blocked right. so they don't they don't it's know the only reason why the 757 actually never really gained a bad reputation from these because it wasn't really the airplane's fault it no. did warn that something it did was wrong say that something was wrong in both instances and in neither instance was it actually Bo- a result of Boeing's failure no it was literally outside failure that caused it to unfortunately happen. yes but so, then they knew then, after the fact. But also Boeing, ultimately pilot error. Right, and then yes. pilot error. Because in each instance, it's technically recoverable. Yeah, it's crappy. Right. And you really should turn around and go back to the airport is That's really said, what you should be doing. Right. That said, Boeing was proactive about this after both instances and made better warnings, better manuals, and everything. And the 757 was actually a very good airplane. still is. Yeah. So just not over the ocean because it's really uncomfortable. Really depends on who the you sixty-seven fly that with. Yeah. wasn't very comfortable. Nah, either. it wasn't. Have to say, because most of the seats that we were Iceland. in. <laughs> yeah. Mostly the seats that we were in. I've been in sixty-sevens that were more comfortable. All right, let's get to our listener question here. Yes. So this is from our friend Lieutenant Spock. Hello, Lieutenant Spock. We have mentioned you recently on a post episode. We did. 
this was about episode 40, which was the one that just released this week, which was November 835. Yeah, 140. 140. It's a, it was about November 8345 November. I think yeah, it's 54 November, by the way. I think you switched those around. But whatever. Whatever. Okay, whatever. Okay. It was the governor's airplane. Yes. And he, he starts with, so there I was. <laughs> I think uh, he started very... every one of his stories. He that, did. By the way. He did. Really enjoying your analysis of the November 8354 November crash with the Missouri governor on board. You mentioned the difficulty that the poor pilot had in maintaining a heading with his bum gyro. And the whole time I was thinking, check your mag compass. Yep. After all, it's the only instrument that doesn't require power of a gyro to work. Correct. It doesn't require power. At all. It just functions. It's just a magnetic (laughs) compass. It just functions. You also accurately stated that it's not always reliable. Variation and deviation errors are pretty obvious, but I figured it was worth talking briefly about the less obvious ones. Acceleration errors are a huge source of confusion with an airborne magnetic compass because the Earth's magnetic field lines are usually oriented north to south. It makes a a magnetized needle orient along that field line. Unfortunately, those field lines also generally go, quote-unquote, down into the surface of the Earth. That would tilt your magnetic compass needle pretty badly in a northern hemisphere. To compensate for this tilting, most aviation compasses in the northern hemisphere have a little counterweight in the south-facing side of the rotating drum that levels out the indicator, but it also induces some pretty severe errors. I had no idea. That makes a lot of sense. I would not have known that. Yeah, actually, back when I was doing some flight training, we actually had a whole study thing about this. It's really interesting because it's really prominent in the northern hemisphere. When heading north and starting a turn to the west or left, for example, Mm -hmm. the mag compass initially will indicate a turn to the right. Oh. Yep. Similarly, a right turn will show up as a turn to the left initially. This error is smoothed out eventually as you continue through the turn, but it can be very confusing. Yeah. If heading due south, a turn in either direction means the mag compass will show a turn in the correct direction, but significantly faster than your actual rate of turn. Right. That makes that situation this is so, so much, much worse. worse. This is something that, yeah, this is all bringing back memories now because I remember studying. <laughs> I remember studying all of this in ground school, and yeah, this is this is something that still to my brain is like, ow, because <laughs> ow. It is, because. Actually experiencing this in an airplane and seeing it, watching it happen and such is really trippy. That doesn't hurt my brain as much as VORs. No. I just want to no, no, put no. that out Yeah, there. of course, a VOR is a far more complex system. And that, yes, of course, that that whole thing having to do with radials and everything. That's, VORs have made me cry. Yes, I know. Well, that's because that is a much more complicated set of maths. Fortunately, you're not a pilot. So. Confusion. Thank God. But this, yes. We figured it out eventually. But this is still something that, like. yes. Yeah, exactly. Who cares about VOR? But this is something that kind of proves how in like aviation, even the very simplest of things, the very simplest of concepts, a compass is not as simple as it seems. So for me, that's actually really interesting. So Miranda and I have talked about before doing ground school or right seat pilot school, quote unquote, in the event that either of us are flying with either you or Brendan, once you get your license, of course. Yes. And for whatever reason, pass out quote-unquote, at the wheel. Please don't. Please don't. Become incapacitated. Please don't. But 
we want to have that training. So in that situation, granted, right now, I feel like we're, we'll be okay. You'd probably be okay. You'd probably figure it out. But it's good to know that we can't just look at the compass because that ain't reliable. You can look at it. You just have to Not understand. Not during a turn. <laughs> I mean, if you have... Just gotta understand what's happening with the compass. If you have outside visuals... You should be okay. It's pretty easy to follow a compass. In the event of, like, this... The governor's yeah, flight, if, it is they a were much harder concept. They were flying in... A storm. ...instrument. Yeah. Right. If, like... If air traffic control is like, turn 20 degrees to the left, and you turn left, and that happens, right. and your only reliable resource, for whatever reason, is your magnetic compass, it's good to know. Yeah. Well, if you ever, next time you go fly with Brendan, watch how that compass bounces around the whole time you're flying, too, because it's it's that unreliable to me. Like, you can watch, like, the liquid in there, like, vibrating, and you can watch that compass just kind of bouncing and floating around in it the whole time, and it's not really reliable. On reliable that note, giving you a good heading even if you're straight and level accelerating or decelerating can cause the compass to swing one direction or the other that's fun all these factors result in a rule of thumb only refer to your mag compass when straight level and unaccelerated yep (laughs) otherwise rely on your gyro driven heading indicator yes all this mental math is of course impossible when it's night you're in the goo and yep. fighting a gyro that just won't stay put. So I sympathize with the pilot's plight, and it's a great lesson for pilots of all ratings and levels of experience. Yes, it is a very dangerous situation they were in. Oh, yeah. Similarly, we should all take the lesson that currency is important. You mentioned this pilot likely wasn't IFR current, and this could have contributed to his failure to control the plane. We said that he didn't log anything. That doesn't mean that he wasn't current. It means that we have right. no fizzucking idea. It means that he could have not been current, or right. he could have been current and wasn't logging it. Either way, not great. Not great. And it's it's dangerous. I mean, especially if he wasn't current. Yes. It, he it shouldn't have been flying with passengers, and he definitely shouldn't have been flying in a storm. On that note, keep reading. Yes. It's, yeah. I was happy to hear that Brendan always makes sure he's current before taking passengers and flies with an instructor when he's rusty. Well done, Brendan. Yep. Yay, we'll Brendan. give him a pat on the back. For like me. I said, he's a good pilot. <laughs> he really is a good pilot. He's very, he's very overly cautious when it comes to flying because he knows one little thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can, mean, we, know, we all know the risk here. You up. Yeah. Yeah. We all know the risk here and most pilots do. But Brendan can be pilot. quite a jokester sometimes, but I've never seen him as serious as when he's in the cockpit. He oh, yeah. is 100% serious. He's like, and, and he does the safety briefing every time. Yep. He makes sure as we know, like, if there's a fire, I'm flying the airplane, you're putting out the fire. Got yeah, it? Here's pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's very, very, very careful and very informative when anyone goes and flies with him. Yeah. As always, I love your show. The analysis you guys do is fantastic, and I'm really impressed at how much you've raised the level of discussion in only a couple of years doing the podcast. Keep your airspeed up. Thanks. Thanks, Lieutenant. Thanks, friendo. It's a very good learning point, and I'm glad you brought that up, because, yeah, that brought back a lot of memories, and it is very true. I would never have known. Nope. It is... Seriously, next time you go fly with Brendan, and these are all things that, like, I remember when I was training too. Is like you look up at that compass every once in a while, and you're like, "Why would I ever use that?" <laughs> <laughs> when your gyro is crap, even in an airliner, it just doesn't—they're not great. 
It's still the same concept. It's the worst case scenario. Right. It's the backup of all backups. Right. If you absolutely need it. You would think that nowadays, like, we have the technology to make this. Like, it doesn't need to rely on a gyro anymore. Like, we could just do this. Yes. GPS and stuff. Like, it's not necessary. But. You go yell at Garmin about it. I'm sure they're already well aware of things like this. But replacing, like, the magnetic compass, of course, it's just you don't ever want that to be an electronic system. Because the whole point is it is analog. Not. (laughs) Right. It is literally just magnetic. Period. But it is important to know the deviations and understand the concepts of how it doesn't really work in a turn. Oh, no. No, no, no. So, yeah, one day Randa and I will do the right seat training. It ain't today. Mm-hmm. It may not even be in the next couple of years. <laughs> we'll see. It might be worth going through like an actual ground school. You don't have to go do any of the training or anything, but it's pretty much the same concept as a right seat. You still learn all of the important things because you learn how to deal like you find yourself in a weather situation for whatever reason, becoming incapacitated. You still have to find your way out of it. Well, and like Tiffany's gone through ground school and such, uh-huh. and she she helps your dad navigate. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a worthwhile thing to do. I think just to understand the concepts. A ground school, we should all do it together. That way, we can all study together too. But it's study group. <laughs> yeah, uh, but how do I escape that? It's usually only a few weeks. Do it a couple of nights a week. It's not that bad. That was Bergen Air Flight 301. (laughs) I remember this time, see? I'm proud of you. Good job. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we're going to do a post-episode if you want to hear... Us um, fry. Yeah. Go ahead and check that out on Patreon. You need to be a $5 patron to get post-episodes. You also get a bunch of other stuff. Yes. With post-episodes. And if you go up to a $10 patron, you get my episodes every month. Which several of our patrons, like, sign up for the $5 level and they're like, oh, crap, I want more. So, like, the day later, they sign up. Sometimes it's literally an hour later. Right. (laughs) And they're like, wait a minute. So, uh, and if you're one of those people and you do that to listen to my episodes, thank you. We see you. Man, I sometimes I'm like, does anybody listen to these? (laughs) Do you like them? Yeah, right. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.